Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mom of the Hard Kid. Today, we're going to be talking about the DSM-5s, post-traumatic stress disorder, diagnostic criteria, and other information. This is an absolutely interesting dynamic here, because when you are raising a child who is very hard, and most specifically in our case, they have reactive attachment disorder, I think a lot of times therapists and medical providers tend to overlook the fact that in my personal belief, and I'm just a mom, I think a ton of what is going on with these kids has a lot to do with their reaction to the trauma, which is in a sense, a post-traumatic reaction. So post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'm going to go through this and I'm going to explain why. But the thing that makes this really unique is raising a child like that can also give the caregiver these characteristics and this disorder. (laughs) So it is like a trauma cycle. And we are going to talk about that today. So if you go to your DSM-5 and not the new one, I only have the old one. So there could be some changes as that happened in when they released last year, the new DSM-5. When I looked over in my simplified version of the changes that happened, there were a few changes that occurred, but a lot of the changes happened to be like switching things to be on a spectrum and they changed things in substance abuse. And they didn't really change a lot in the post-traumatic stress disorder, according to the booklet that I got. So the changes that they did make is they changed it from an anxiety disorder to another section where they call it OCD and related disorders and trauma stress disorders. So they've just change the location is where it's categorized. But according to everything I've looked up, the actual information under post-traumatic stress hasn't changed. So just know that. So on page 271 of the DSM-5, you have the diagnostic criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. So I'm going to read some of these and then talk a little bit about like how that shows up in my child with reactive attachment disorder and how it shows up in me, the parent of a child with reactive attachment disorder. So they don't usually give this diagnosis of PTSD to a child under the age of six. And my child is under the age of six and she does have this diagnosis. And so when you kind of are in the mental health field, it seems to me that people are saying, oh, well, I don't diagnose them with PTSD because I've diagnosed them with reactive attachment disorder. And because those are kind of you know, intertwined, I just know that reactive attachment disorder is PTSD. But one of the things as a parent of a child in this situation, one of the things that I hate about this is that they tend to box in the treatment to one way or another way. So something that might be really effective for someone with post-traumatic stress disorder, they kind of don't really go into that because oh, your child only has reactive attachment disorder. And as we've previously discussed, reactive attachment disorder doesn't clearly explain most of a my, my child's symptoms, but many children who have reactive attachment disorder or disinhibited social engagement disorder, 
it doesn't really explain what's going on inside their brains. It gives like this tiny explanation. I think of it kind of like putting a pin in a map where you're like, yes, that's Chicago. And you put the little pin there, but that doesn't really explain what Chicago is. But if anyone's like, hey, do you, do you know Chicago? Do you know where it is? And they're like, yeah, there's a pin in the map. And you're like, yeah, but do you know like how to get there and how to navigate through the streets? There's a pin in the map. Like it just, it doesn't give any kind of answers. And as a parent, it's intensely frustrating to try to find help for your child when they're being boxed into this little section and their real issues are not being addressed. So I don't know what the perfect solution is for someone who has PTSD. I can tell you what has worked for me, a parent, but I can also tell you that I really have not come across many mental health professionals that understand. So we're going to dive in. So it has some explanations for what happens for children under the age of six. And we'll talk about that as well. So the first thing they have is diagnostic criteria A, exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence in one or more of the following ways. Number one, directly witnessing a traumatic event. Number two, witnessing in person the event that occurred to others. Number three, learning that the traumatic event occurred close to a family member or close friends. And in the case of actual or threatened death of a family member or friend, the event might have been violent or accidental. Number four, experience repeated or extreme exposure to adverse I'm sorry, averse details of the traumatic event. So first responders, for example, who collect human remains or police officers who are repeatedly exposed to details of child abuse. Okay, this does not fit. This does not fit for my child. But we're going to keep going. In diagnostic criteria B, it has the presence of one or more of the following intrusion symptoms associated with traumatic events beginning after traumatic events occurred. So number one, recurrent, involuntary, and intrusive distressing memories of the traumatic event. I feel like that's incredibly relevant. I think that when they do PTSD, they sort of think, oh, well, it has to be one thing. It has to be a major event. And so I will keep going and explain that later. So It says here in a little note underneath that children under six years, repetitive play may occur in which themes or aspects of the traumatic events are expressed. So this is why your therapist is doing play therapy with your kid, because they're trying to see how they act out life right? They're trying to see that. The only way that this showed up in the year and a half of play therapy we did with my child is my child who is uh, probably four, fairly new to the age of four, would get out the baby dolls, dress them, lay them down, and that's how they'd play with the baby dolls. Well, I've had her for years at this time, and I can tell you we have played, we have done stuff, we have, we have absolutely played with this child. We have absolutely taken her places. We've put her in, got her all these gymnastic things and they play together. And then we, you know, jump on the trampoline. Like we do all these things together. But for some reason, she would just take these babies, 
changed their clothes and lay them down. And that is how she played with babies. And she liked to play with these babies that way, but she wouldn't snuggle them and she wouldn't hug them and she wouldn't do any of those kind of things with the babies. And as I think back, like we, she didn't like any of those things. She didn't want to be rocked to sleep. She didn't want to be snuggled. I would hug her when she got hurt, but she didn't, she didn't like those things. So she wasn't a big snuggler. I would hug her before bed. I would I would do those things because I was supposed to, but she didn't like those things. So we didn't do them a lot. You know how some babies are snugglers? Not a snuggler. <laughs> so that showed up in her therapy, but I I digress. So in section B2, recurrent distressing dreams in which content and or effect of the dreams are related to the traumatic event. So it also has a note here that in children, there may be frightening dreams without recognizable content. Number three, disassociative reactions. Flashbacks, when an individual feels and acts as if the trauma events were reoccurring. And in children, trauma-specific reenaction may occur in play. This is why they do play therapy with your child. Number four, intense or prolonged psychological distress at exposure to internal or external cues that symbolize or resemble an aspect of traumatic events. Now, don't forget, my child went through her difficult times when she is under a year old. She's not going to be able to understand why she has these traumatic situations. And they definitely don't fit any of these criteria, which is why sometimes your therapist is going to be like, uh, 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 this doesn't fit. They didn't experience a traumatic event. Number one, you don't know. I don't know what my child experienced in those 11 months that she didn't live with me. But what I do know is these things still show up. She has a ton of crazy reactions to very simple things. Um, Her parents have a certain ethnicity that is different than mine and they listen to different music and they speak a different language. So when I started out with her, I thought, oh, well, I need to I need to make sure that she feels this connection to this different culture and these different languages. And I would put on the radio station that had this different language and I would put on songs so that the, the person who is speaking is speaking that language, but also there's the the song so that she would have that kind of as part of her and she would freak out freak out I mean she's 11 months old she's 10 months old and I'm embarrassed to say it probably took me 10 tries to kind of recognize the correlation because at first I thought oh she's just upset she doesn't want music oh she's just upset she doesn't want the radio on like that's what I thought at first because she was upset a lot. But it turns out it was every time and you could change the radio station to a different station and then she's happy. And it was that specific type of music that put her in a place where she couldn't handle and she would just scream, scream, sweaty, just freak out, scream. 
So that definitely happened in our situation, but it didn't look like all of the PTSD. And it's not like she could tell you she's a baby. She wasn't verbal at this point. She could say the word hi. And it was so cute. She would be like, hi. It sounded like she was so old. She's this little tiny thing. It was adorable. Anyway, I go off again. Um, so number five, section B, number five, marked physiological reactions to internal or external cues that symbolize or resemble an aspect of traumatic events. This is another thing that would show up where if we would head down the road that we would take in order to go visit her parents in foster care when when they'd have their parent visits, we would head down that road and she would start to disassociate even after the adoptions happened, even after she hasn't um, seen her parents in a long time and you think, oh, she's young. She's not going to remember. She most definitely remembered. It is in still to this day, five years after she came into my home, we can drive down that street and she will still comment. She still remembers. And we haven't had visits with those parents for four years. She's been adopted for four years. So D is, oh, I'm sorry, C, let's not jump too fast. C, persistent avoidance of stimuli associated with the traumatic events beginning after a traumatic event occurred as evidenced by one or both of the following. Number one, avoidance of or effort to avoid distressing memories, thoughts, or feelings about or closely associated with traumatic events. Number two, avoidance of or efforts to avoid external reminders, peoples, places, conversations, activities, objects, situations that arouse distressing memories, thoughts, or feelings about or closely associated with the traumatic events. To me, if you are going to give a description of what reactive attachment truly is, it would be section C. When you are doing, they are doing everything in their power to avoid having any kind of interaction that reminds them of whatever relationship was severed in the first place. So with that original parent, or sometimes because they are rotated through so many foster cares, they don't like making any connections. And usually that ends up being with the maternal caregiver, because that's usually who it is, but it can be it can be anybody. It can be the, the paternal caregiver. It depends. It just depends. And it also depends on if something happened to them physically that you don't know because they're little and then they associate men as the bad guy or something. In our case, our daughter was taken away from her mother at birth because of drug testing and then given to her father who then let mother back in and then they collectively together neglected but because she spent more time with the dad and the dad was not um, as big of the problem, if that makes sense. He, he didn't have as big a drug problem. He wasn't as big an issue. She actually really gravitates towards men. And I assign it to this fact. Now, I could be wrong, but this is what I assign it to. The fact that her dad was the only nurturing presence that she had in her life. Uh, it started showing up really early. But she also, in my opinion, avoids any kind of feelings like that with the maternal caregiver, which was me, 
because of the feelings that she had with the trauma that occurs before she even can put it into words. This has just happened to her and she can't, you know, verbalize it and she can't compartmentalize it. It just is. And it's a very confusing place for her to be, I imagine. And it's incredibly hard to deal with. But we're going to go back to section D. Negative alterations in cognitions and mood associated with traumatic events beginning or worsening after the traumatic event occurred, as evidenced by two or more of the following. Number one, an inability to remember an important aspect of the traumatic events due to disassociative and disassociative amnesia and not to other factors such as a head injury or alcohol or drugs. So this is kind of when you sort of separate yourself and you disassociate, which is in a way what she would do when we would go down that road. So she would just sort of shut down. And (laughs) if any of you listened to the previous episode that I did, where when my daughter's behaviors amp up, I accidentally do this. I don't mean to start to disassociate. I don't mean to go numb. But when she starts getting into her crazy, because her crazy was so intense for so long, I start shutting off. So number two, persistent and exaggerated negative beliefs or expectations about oneself, others, or the world. For example, I am bad. No one can be trusted. The world is dangerous. My whole nervous system is permanently ruined. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I'm laughing out loud because I literally said that last line yesterday. (laughs) That's that just struck me as funny. So absolutely a persistent and exaggerated negative belief about herself. 100%. And, and when it was, I forgot to talk about the, the PTSD and parenting when you avoid the stimuli, because I think you find when you were raising a really hard kid that you do everything in your power to stop that difficulty from happening. So I wouldn't go play with my friends, play. I wouldn't go out with my friends. I wouldn't take her to places that would make her upset. I would, I would, I spent so much time trying to avoid the triggers that would cause the issue for me. And in the same way, she was trying to avoid the triggers that would cause that in her, but it came out as mean and horrible and aggressive and vindictive and homicidal in some ways. And it was, it came out in a terrifying way for her. But that was her way to avoid having a relationship with me. Because having a relationship with me in the way that I interpret the situation is that she is going to have those feelings. And then those feelings are going to be ripped apart and ruined. And she does not want to do that anymore. She's so hurt. And you've had friends, I imagine, some friends that have been in a relationship where they are so wounded when that relationship ends that they don't date anymore. And they stay away from it for quite a while because it really hurt them. And I think this is kind of what I interpret as what is going on with our children. They're just trying so hard. And the solution is not to try and force them into any relationship or you will end up 
in a much worse place. But going on, number three, persistent distorted cognitions about the cause or the consequences of traumatic events that lead to the individual to blame him or herself or others. I, I mean, to me, this is reactive attachment disorder. This child blames themselves because that's the only way they can wrap their head around it. They're so stuck, most particularly if it comes from an area of neglect, they're so stuck in only understanding things from their own point of view. So they can't understand it from the other point of view. So of course, it is their fault. And of course, they don't want it to be because they hate this other person. So there becomes this absolute in our situation, I feel that she hates herself. She hates herself for not being worthy of love. And she hates the other person for making her feel that way is kind of how I see our situation. Number four, persistent negative emotional state. Absolutely. (laughs) It says the options examples here are fear, horror, anger, guilt, or shame. I would just say it comes across as anger, even though I think all of those things are in there, because I think they are just really, that's their, that's their response to the stress, fight, flight, freeze. I think fight is where they're comfortable. And so they are feeling all of those things, but they're expressing it as fight. And so they're expressing their fear as fight and their horror as fight and their guilt and shame. All of those are as anger because they don't know how to differentiate maybe, or they don't know what to do with all these feelings. And I think of it in my own child because I think it was really hard for her to know what those feelings were because she was exposed to really intense feelings at an age where she couldn't make any kind of associations and understand what those feelings were. But I think to her, it's like a big hazy gray area and there are darker grays and there are lighter grays. And she just, I think it's kind of blurred together in a way and there's not a lot of organization and there's not a lot of clarity. So I think it's really hard for her to tell the difference. So she just responded in that same way over and over and over and over. And it was, it was just really, (laughs) it's really hard. (laughs) Because I would have to say that my persistent negative emotional state because of hers was probably a fear. I spent a ton of my time being hyper vigilant, trying to make sure stuff didn't happen, making sure that everything went according to plan. Because if everything did, I could keep her from falling apart. And I needed to, because if she fell apart, I fell apart. If I fell apart, my other kids fell apart. If everybody's falling apart everybody's apart. My whole house is in chaos. So I, I I really, I mean, I wish I could have told myself that things were going to get better in the future, but I didn't think they were going to. I kind of just went on and was like, okay, if I put the work in now, I won't have to put it in later. And I just kind of went in until I had nothing left. And I don't know if there was really another way to do it, but I would have given myself a hug because I needed it. (laughs) Oh, number five, markedly diminished interest or participation in significant activities. That one wasn't, didn't show up in my child, but it definitely showed up in me. 
Number six, feeling of detachment or estrangement from others. For sure. Number one in my child, because that is kind of the crux of her issue with reactive attachment disinhibited social engagement disorder. But for me, I couldn't relate to anyone around me anymore. Because when I would sit around the other moms and they're saying, oh, my kid's so hard. I just thought, oh, yeah, like you, you think your kid is hard, you know, and I didn't say these things out loud, but I would think them in my head. And I just realized I had no connection to the people around me anymore. I was I was in this jungle by myself. And they were out on the beach enjoying their life, it seemed to me, which of course is just a skewed perspective from my vantage point. But I couldn't get there. I couldn't get to any kind of connection with anybody else. I they didn't get it. And it and it did make me mad because there's that word estrangement where you have like negative feelings for other people. For sure. I most definitely did. I was jealous. I was angry. I was all of those things. And I was overwhelmed on top of it all. But number seven in this group is persistent inability to experience positive emotions. I had to stop (laughs) and I had to come back because that made me incredibly emotional. Because yeah, one of the ways that you protect yourself when you're raising a child that is this hard is to shut off your feelings. And one of the ways your child protects themselves from those hard feelings is to shut off their feelings. They have the big ones. And even when I shut off my feelings, I was capable of like big feelings, but they were all despair and they were all frustration and they were all anger. And I couldn't feel happy. I didn't know how anymore. And I think that my child could feel happy when she had the prospect of greener grasses. Like, oh, I need to let this person know how amazing I am. They think I'm amazing. But she couldn't get there either. She couldn't get to a point where she could just live in a contentment in her day. And I couldn't either. But we're going to move on to section E. Marked alterations in arousal and reactivity associated with the traumatic events beginning or worsening after the traumatic event occurred as evidenced by two or more of the following. Okay, this is where I think it gets gray area for mental health professionals, because I don't think that they think that just being neglected counts enough as PTSD. I don't think that they realize that a child doesn't need to be able to know what happened in order to be affected by what happened. And that sounds stupid because of course you would think they'd be able to wrap their head around it. But I mean this in a diagnostic and a treatment type of way where they say, oh no, you fit over here. Oh no, no over there. And I don't think they realize, no, it, it can happen this way. And I think this next section really just shows how it can be the exact same. So remember, evidenced by two or more of the following. Number one, irritable behavior and angry outbursts with little or no provocation, typically expressed as verbal or physical aggression toward people or objects. For her, absolutely. (laughs) So much, so much damage, so much screaming, so much throwing stuff and raging and tearing things, like so much. And for me, I think I think I definitely, my poor other children, I just, 
I, I think one of my biggest regrets is the impact it had on them is I could, I didn't have any more. I didn't have any more patience left to give. My patience was gone a year ago. I, and I couldn't get any more because I was constantly being drained of whatever I have. And I'm so embarrassed to admit this. <laughs> but there was a time and it was like a two year span that ended when my child went to school, maybe a little bit during the summer, where if my kids were chewing, I could not handle the chewing because I didn't realize how dysregulated I was, but I was so dysregulated. So when my kids would chew, I'm like, stop it. You can't sit by me. You know, <laughs> it was, I say that and I know it sounds ridiculous, but it was that bad. It was so bad. I'm like, I love you, but you need to go sit over there by your dad. Like I, I can't like, it was so awful. And I already am emotional from that one number seven. So this is going to be rough for me to get through. <laughs> but we shall laugh about it the best that we can. Number two, reckless or self-destructive behavior. I didn't have this. She lived this. This is how she lived her life. Reckless and self-destructive. Number three, hypervigilance. That's me. That was me for sure. But it was also her because while I used my hypervigilance to try and stop her, she would use her hypervigilance to try to read me. So you could see her eyes like doing that thing where they kind of flick to the side because they're trying to understand and they're trying to see more than one part of you, part of your face at a time. So her eyes would flip as she's trying to just see if I really mean what I'm saying. And she was so, so hypervigilant about that, that she knew every, every reaction of my face and what it really meant, whether my mouth was saying the right things or not, which is why I've explained in the past that I think you have to be 100% honest because if your child hyperfixates on those things so that they can be hypervigilant and, and, and try to figure you out, then you have to have that match or you're not going to have that trust. So that's just a side note. Number four, exaggerated startle response. <laughs> I'm laughing because for sure that was me, but it was also her. You could, we were just done. There was nothing in our bodies to keep us calm, that everything was raw. And I use the terminology, our nerves were just exposed, which is why I also said my, my whole nervous system is ruined. <laughs> There's a couple reasons for that. But that was <laughs> because you just sit there in the space where you're, I think of it like a cat, we have a cat. And when he comes in from being outside, he's hyper vigilant himself, because we have mountain lions and we have um, coyotes, that's the word. And we have animals around raccoons, we have a bunch of wildlife, not to mention the neighboring cats and the neighboring dogs, but we have a lot of things he has to be really, really aware of to keep himself safe. So when he comes in, we'll shut the door and he'll head somewhere. And if somebody, you know, bonks their toe on the bench, he he jumps, right? He, he doesn't have anymore. He just, he's scared of everything. He hasn't calmed down. And that's how it is. That was how it was with her. And that was how it was with me is I was so terrified about what was going to tip her over the edge. Because the once you went over the edge, it you didn't come back. And sometimes for months, you didn't come back and you would just be trying to bail the water where it was supposed to go all the time and you just couldn't recover. So I was absolutely, we both had that exaggerated startle response. 
Number five, problems with concentration. So I blame this on a multiplicity of things. When you have a surplus of stress hormone in your body, your body tends to not be able to think clearly anymore. Because one of the things it's doing is it's sending the stress hormone into your body so that you will run, so that you can use it. You know, it's not doing it so necessarily you can think clearly. It's so you can punch someone in the face or you can run away or I know they have the freeze response, but I I think a lot of people they're saying, "Hey, we're going to pull all of that energy from your brain and use it in your muscles." And when you don't utilize it with your muscles because it's not a situation you're going to punch anybody in and it's not a situation that you can run away from, that you end up having it all in your body and it's incredibly damaging to your organs, including your brain, including your liver, including your pancreas, and you just end up with a lot of negative consequences just from the stress of this, including problems with concentration. And number six, sleep disturbance, difficulty falling or staying asleep or restless sleep. Absolutely. She did pretty well. I did have to give her melatonin Um, But then she kind of cycles. So she'll go through these cycles where she's almost like, what's the word manic, I call it manic, I don't really know what manic means. But she's like, living high for like, four, five weeks, and then she'll kind of come down from that. And she'll be able to go to sleep without having to have any assistance. It rotates. It's kind of weird, but that's what happens. So then we go to F and it talks about the duration of the disturbance. And they're talking about in criteria B, C, D, and E. And they're saying, hey, this all has to last more than one month. So if this has happened and it hasn't been a month yet and your child has experienced a situation, then they're not going to label this as PTSD until it's been more than one month. But this has been her whole life, so... (laughs) I think it fits for us. Um, G, the disturbance causes clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. I feel like this matches too, because I feel like your family life is an incredibly important and significant part of your life, and it causes a great disturbance in the relationship you have with your family, but also because this bleeds into other areas where you have impacts on your emotional regulation and things like that. And, and everything's a trigger and you're living in an exaggerated startle response with, with reckless self-destructive behavior that it ends up, you know, going into school and going into friendships and going, you know, you're playing at the park and somebody calls or something. And so like (laughs) it all just goes off again. Um, And then H, the disturbance is not attributable to the psychological effects of a substance. Oh, I, yeah, no, that's correct spot. So not alcohol, not, and this is another area that you'll find a hard time if your child has been exposed to uh, drugs or alcohol in utero or even after that they, they kind of have a hard time and they're like, oh, well, it's because of that. And that's fine for me. But I also think it's okay for you to include this in and maybe include some of the techniques that help people with PTSD, because I really do think these children are experiencing PTSD. And so I think it's okay to try those techniques to help them. It's kind of like with the borderline personality disorder. 
I don't need you, which has several overlaps with this. I don't need you to tell me that my child has borderline personality disorder. I need you to know that this is how it's showing up and it's showing up like this. So let's come together and try to figure this out. And in all my research and in all my observation, I can say I think multiple things are happening here at the same time. And I think that's why it's so hard. And I think that's why it's so damaging. And I think it's okay to say that multiple things are happening at the same time. Because reactive attachment disorder and disinhibited social engagement disorder are wounds that happen to your child's psyche and to their brain when they are so young that they have no tools in any area. So I think it's understandable that this spreads across a very wide field because I don't think your kids have any of the tools to explain it, to figure it out, to filter it, to categorize it. And so it becomes really difficult for them to create those tools for anything in the future. So I'm going to go on here because it has these two dissociative symptom sections. And I want to talk about that because it's related, but this is going to be a really long episode maybe, or maybe I'll separate it because the one I've been talking about over the age of six, but then I think I'll make another one, another one, because this is already going long, where we talk about PTSD in six and younger. So I will talk about the dissociative symptoms and then I will close out and start another one. So the dissociative symptoms that they talk about, it says here that individual symptoms meet the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. And in addition, in response to the stressor, the individual experiences persistent or reoccurring symptoms of either of the following. Number one, depersonalization. And number two, derealization. Dispersonalization is explained as persistent or reoccurrent experiences of feeling detached from and as if one were an outside observer of one's mental process or body. So feeling like you're in a dream or an unreal sense of self. And number two, derealization, persistent or reoccurrent experiences of unreality of surroundings. So the world around the individual seems dreamlike, unreal, distorted. (sighs) That's just kind of where you live when you hit an experience with a child who is so difficult for so long, is you just live in a place where your body can't process it all anymore. It's tired, it's worn out, it's scared. And the world is happening around you and you're just there. You're there. You're physically there. You know you're there, but there's just too much to process. And you kind of, you sort of shut down is how I would describe it, is you just shut down. And then it kind of ends here and talks about how it can't be connected to something else like substance abuse or another medical condition and they use the example of seizures. So when you are parenting a child like this, I want you to be aware if any of these things happen because it talks about one big event. But the truth is, the rages and the tantrums and the screaming are a reoccurring event. And 
as much as you're like, oh, well, I made it through that one. That was crazy. By the time you hit your 4,354th tantrum slash rage, you don't have it anymore. These small things that seem fairly small compared to a major event, a catastrophic event, can still add up and create a situation where you end up with PTSD from raising your child. And I believe it. And luckily, the therapist that I had (laughs) believed it too. But if any of you do run into a problem, I actually think therapists are fairly good at understanding this part. But know that it can be just as real to have trauma after trauma after trauma, even though they're not as big as a cataclysmic event. And that it's understandable that you're having a hard time if you are having a hard time. Well, I'm going to jump off and start the next one about the stress disorder for children under six and get that to you as soon as I can. But I hope going through this helps you give yourself a little bit of grace for the things that you're experiencing when you are raising a child that is incredibly difficult because you need to cut yourself some slack and know that it really is that hard and it really has impacted you. And hopefully this will help you be able to find a path. Maybe you'll find that therapist that will understand. Maybe you'll find that friend who will recognize the PTSD and the trauma that you've experienced as a parent. And maybe you'll even find luck out and be able to tell the therapist of your child, hey, I'd like to go down this path because this is where I see problems in my child. If of course you do see problems like that in your child. And maybe you can find a way out of the jungles that you're living in and into the sunlight again. And life maybe won't be so cloudy and dismal and dark anymore. I wish you so much the best. Thank you so much for joining me.